And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to this packed program in which I again give my thoughts free reign. It's August 15th, 2023, and in our calendar, the 28th of AF 5783. I am Walter Bingham, and you have no idea how happy I am that my eyesight allows me to make this show. It's not the recording that is the problem, but it's for research and compiling that I need my eyes. With God's help and prayers, the regular injections into the eye will hopefully bring me back to near normal. Some parts of this program were first heard four years ago, but as you will notice, it could easily apply today. So I thought it would be interesting to look back and see what has changed, if anything, and what is just the same as today, regardless of the musical chairs in government. There is always more to the news than the headlines, and we bring it all to you. This from four years ago. These days, anti-Semitism is never out of the news. I was born and raised in Germany. I saw the book burning and experienced Kristallnacht. Times were very hard for Jews. The Nazis turned the screw ever tighter. But before the outbreak of war, at age 15 and a half, I came to England with a kinder transport, all by myself. As you see, I survived and eventually joined the British Army, landed on the beaches of Normandy and fought through France, Belgium and Holland, until, as a German speaker, I was transferred to counterintelligence, trained in London, and when World War II ended, I was a British sergeant working for counterintelligence in Hamburg, Germany. My first job was to visit all the offices of the many Nazi organizations, look through the documents and decide which to retain locally and which to send to Schaefe, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, document section in London for further evaluation and necessary dissemination. The area I was to cover with my partner was all of Greater Hamburg with a population at the time of one and a half million. It was an impossible task. Most important were of course the local office files because they showed details of Nazis to be arrested. Eventually, my job expanded to other work, wearing civilian clothes or officer's insignia to enhance my authority when engaged in certain work. My transport was an open blue BMW car. The highest-ranking Nazi I interviewed was Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop. He tried to tell me that he knew nothing of the mass extermination of Jews until he read it in the newspaper published by the British. Did he really believe that British intelligence agents are stupid? For now, back to today. I was once certain that because of our victory over Nazi Germany, anti-Semitism can be eradicated by example and education. But their indoctrination was so effective that it took several generations for them to realize the error of their ways and that they have been duped by Nazi propaganda. 
Eventually, we experienced several decades of relative quiet and peace for Jews, a kind of suspension of anti-Jewish activity. The Germans and other countries enacted laws to punish Holocaust denial and anti-Semitic talk. I personally was very happy that my small contribution to eradicate that evil bore fruit and that, as Jews, we could now again follow our faith without fear. But it was an illusion. Anti-Semitism bubbled away below the surface, prevented only by laws to show itself openly. Today, in 2023, Jewish cemeteries are being desecrated, Jewish premises daubed with swastikas, synagogues attacked and Jews physically hurt. The massive immigration from Muslim countries helped to fuel the German anti-Semitism and the excuse that it is a protest against the State of Israel is a masquerade of Jew hatred. But anti-Semitism is now widespread throughout Europe and even further afield with deadly results. Even the Golden Medina, New York, is now severely tarnished. In fact, the gold has worn off. There are anti-Semitic hate crimes in New York every day. New York's recent successive mayors have done very little to eradicate the situation. In fact, they contributed to the increase by supporting the New York State's sweeping criminal justice reform legislation that eliminates money bail with only two exceptions, sex offence, misdemeanours and criminal contempt charges for an order of protection violation in a domestic violence case. There is no pre-trial detention for nearly all misdemeanours and non-violent felony cases. Just imagine the implications. In other words, you attack a Jew in the street, get arrested and then walk free until your case comes to court. In these cases, defendants undergo no restriction and must simply appear at the appointed court date. Too bad if you don't turn up and they can't find you. With regard to anti-Semitism, our generation of Holocaust survivors can see the striking similarities with the early 1930s, but with two important differences. First of all, we have the State of Israel that will never allow another Holocaust. Secondly, anti-Semitism is now widely discussed in the media. However, Jews will never live in peace and quiet outside Israel so long as the phenomenon of anti-Semitism disguised as anti-Zionism is allowed to flourish. Neither the State of Israel nor any security organization can control the actions of some indoctrinated lone wolf or small group of such terrorists of whom no prior record exists. It is my view that the usual punishment for anti-Semitic offences will never be enough to deter others from doing the same. And I suggest that the unusual system that Israel employs would have a great impact on violent anti-Semites in the Western world.
I refer to the destruction of their homes or of those owned by their immediate family. The effect for the Western mentality would be surprising, but the oh-so-correct Westerners would never do that, but would rather sacrifice the Jews on the altar of political correctness. Britain's Parliament voted on a bill advanced by Michael Gove, the minister in charge of local government, that will ban public bodies from imposing economic boycotts on countries that are not already sanctioned by the government. That refers particularly to Israel. The bill, which has passed the second reading and will now go on to the committee stage, affirms the important principle that UK foreign policy is a matter for the government and sends a clear message to local councils and other public-funded institutions, such as universities, that they need to focus on delivering for the public and not spending taxpayers' money pursuing their own foreign policy agenda. Those who break the rules will face stiff penalties. This measure fulfills a 2020 Conservative Manifesto pledge. For years, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement has been trying to end international support for Israel. It is regrettable, however, that there are Jewish organizations in the UK, even so-called Zionist-oriented Jewish youth movements, that are in agreement with this anti-Israel policy. They include Habonim Draw, the Labour youth movement, Noam, the Zionist youth for Masorti Judaism, and the two who pretend to be Zionist, Netzer youth movements for liberal and reform Jewish youth. These secular youth organizations issued a statement in which they referred to themselves as future leaders of the British Jewish community, God help us, and that they are combined in their opposition to this law that bans the imposition of BDS on Israel. They call on the mainstream representative bodies of British Jewry, the Board of Deputies of British Jews and the Jewish Leadership Council, who both support the government's position, to oppose this proposed legislation. These self-styled wannabes claim that the proposed legislation will prevent public bodies from supporting boycotts against countries that, in their view, violate human rights. It would place restrictions on freedom of expression and disempower their young members and prevent them from affecting change in the Jewish community and beyond. They conclude their statement with the following ridiculous and contradictory sentence. We do not believe that banning BDS in public bodies is an effective way to advocate for Israel. It may well do the opposite. They go on to claim that BDS is a non-violent protest that can be debated but should not be banned. Well, in my opinion, it constitutes violence against the economy of a peaceful and democratic member of the United Nations. And secondly, 
BDS against Israel has already been extensively debated and found to be unjustified. Perhaps these self-hating Jews also support allowing anti-Semitism so as to protect the right of freedom of expression. Or does all that only apply to views with which they disagree? Hardly a week goes by without reports of terror incidents in our small country, whether attacks on security forces while carrying out an arrest in one of the Arab cities or neighbourhoods, or on a junction of a major highway, or at a bus stop in a city. The latest murderous attack took place in the city centre of Tel Aviv, when municipal patrol guard Ken Amir began to question a suspicious male. He was a terrorist who then shot and killed the guard at close range. By Genamir's brave intervention, he prevented what could have become a much more serious attack. Another guard shot and killed the terrorist. Less than 24 hours after the murder in Tel Aviv, security forces eliminated a three-man terror cell from the Arab city of Jenin, who were en route to carry out another attack on Israeli citizens. The terrorist infrastructure in Jenin seems to be able to produce a succession of willing volunteers to carry out terrorist murders while being prepared to risk their own life in the process. All that despite repeated attempts by the IDF to clean out the hidden locations. But the IDF will continue that task until the rat's nest that is located in the so-called Jenin refugee camp is destroyed. Also this week, two Israelis are reported to have infiltrated the Arab village of Sandala and damaged property. That sparked a riot during which a 19-year-old resident of the village was killed by live fire from one of the Israeli intruders. Both Israelis have been arrested. Whilst in light of constant reports of young Arab men carrying out terrorist attacks, I cannot muster much sympathy for the 19-year-old. Although I regret any death, I condemn in the strongest possible terms the attack on the Arab village. Firstly, we must not sink as low as they, and most importantly, such action, when reported in the media, mostly carries a spin that does not accurately describe the circumstances. Their foolish, ill-considered and murderous action is totally counterproductive to the cause they profess to defend. Israel's security forces are perfectly capable to carry out any necessary operations as they abundantly prove daily. As I said last week, I really don't want to tell the Americans what to do, but when I see how the Democrats have allowed the iconic city of New York to become a garbage dump, I really must ask some questions. No, the term does not refer to the illegal immigrants. I'll get to them in a moment. New York streets are no longer paved with gold, as used to be said. They are now literally covered with rubbish, 
generated by the masses who have taken advantage of its declared status as sanctuary city. The sidewalks of many streets have become the sleeping quarters of thousands of illegal immigrants. New York cannot cope. Not only have several of the well-known hotels been requisitioned to house them, but the city's children are also now paying for the disaster. They are being deprived of their recreational facilities because the school gyms and their ballparks have become the homes for those so-called asylum seekers, the largest majority who are not persecuted in their countries of origin, but have come to the U.S. because they are being financially assisted. More are arriving daily. There was always an influx of immigrants to New York, but when it was controlled, the newcomers either had money, jobs, or were immediately industrious and productive. Those new arrivals are a serious strain on the economy, and I must ask, where does the money come from to finance it all? The answer seems plain. The taxpayer. Up to recently, New Yorkers were not much concerned about the influx of illegal immigrants into the U.S. They considered it a problem for the border states. Perhaps now they and the rest of the country, where there are similar problems, will take stock of their political affiliation and realize what the Democrats have done to this once wonderful country. The consequences of this political game will be felt for a very long time. Experience elsewhere has shown that far from assimilating, migrants who come from Muslim areas are intent to impose their culture on their hosts, just as particularly Sweden and France are experiencing that illegal Muslim immigrants are making their presence felt to the extent that the country becomes difficult to govern. The Democrats' long-term aim to ensure a permanent Democrat voting electorate is a dream that will badly misfire. That dream is apparent from their intention to try and make the District of Columbia into an additional state and also to incorporate Puerto Rico in order to get four more Democratic senators. For the United States to regain its lost world status and for the dollar to remain the world's base currency, it is important for a Republican government to be returned at the 2024 elections. In our own country, the opposition to the government's new law that restricts the power of the Supreme Court to apply the reasonableness argument to reverse legislation is gathering steam, helped by the method of the mainstream media's biased reporting. The opposition is sinking lower than could have been imagined. Israel National News reports that attorney Ofer Bartel, a former candidate for the Supreme Court, criticized the Prime Minister's refusal to abide by the court's ruling on legislation. In an interview on Channel 12 News, he was heard to say, I think, and forgive me for being blunt, I think Bibi, that's Netanyahu's nickname, is an Iranian spy.
If there's anything that harms the country's security, economy, society, and every other basic thing in the country, it is the Prime Minister. The damage done is so much more harmful than if Iranian rockets were falling here. In a subsequent statement, he walked back on the spy comments, but not on the rest. Netanyahu's Likud party decided to file a police complaint against Bartel, requesting the prosecutor's office and law enforcement agency to take decisive action against the incitement against Netanyahu that is raging in the media and by the opposition. Here I want to add that in the past, Netanyahu made great play of his intention to annex the Jordan Valley. He said, and I quote, the annexation plan will cover the entire Jordan Valley along the whole border from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. It will exclude Jericho and its environs and doesn't annex even one Palestinian. Now it looks as if it was an electioneering ploy. Or perhaps he looks over his shoulder to the International Court of Justice. Yet we've already established that the ICC has no jurisdiction over Israel. Having said all that, Netanyahu is still the best choice for Israel, particularly in light of Iran. One of Netanyahu's long-standing promises is to deal with the incessant attacks from the Gaza terrorist enclave on our brothers and sisters in the south of the country. So far, localized campaigns by the IDF have not changed the situation. The terrorists are still in full control of Gaza. It is not often that Sarah Netanyahu, the Prime Minister's wife, gets a good press. She is said to be arrogant and very demanding of her staff, though I have no evidence of that. She was also accused of defrauding the state by retaining the deposit money retrieved for empty bottles at the official residence. In my opinion, that was an unreasonable attempt to hurt Netanyahu, and that case should never have been brought. As I said last week, there is an indomitable determination on the part of the political left in Israel to unseat our Prime Minister and to ensure that he can never ever be eligible to stand for political office. This week, Mrs. Netanyahu showed a different side of her perceived character when she met with representatives of the non-profit association Mate Hamaavak Lemaan Hayeladim, loosely translated, showing love for the sake of the children which is active in the struggle to eradicate violence against children in daycare centers and kindergartens. Far too frequently we hear of so-called trained staff abusing tiny tots. Three representatives of that organization presented the personal and painful stories of the abuse that their children suffered and how they have coped with the effects until the present. They discussed the necessary steps to eradicate that phenomenon by installing cameras in kindergartens and daycare centers. Mrs. Netanyahu, who is a qualified educational and career psychologist, expressed her support for their struggle and for amending the cameras law.
when she said, We are embarking on a long journey to prevent abuse in kindergartens from birth to age six. The importance of the cameras is that they are living testimony and a deterrent factor. They will make the traumatic questioning of children who cannot always express what happened unnecessary. Children are helpless and are not always capable of expressing themselves verbally, nor are they always believed. It is necessary to have proof, and cameras are the first and most essential tool. Mrs. Netanyahu added that victims need close support. In violence of this kind, the ramifications of the injury are great. It affects livelihood at home and the family. In most cases, the overall suffering is neither seen nor treated. Both Mrs. Netanyahu and the mothers emphasize that most of the women who are members of the education staff at daycare centers and kindergartens are amazing and dedicated women who invest in educating the children. The minority, which endangers and hurts everyone, must be dealt with. Now to another subject involving women. In Judaism, rabbis are neither priests nor any other deity. They are our teachers. Having begun full-time study of Jewish scriptures from an early age into adulthood and beyond, in fact, they never stop, they are well equipped to teach and advise on many facets of halacha and minhag, Jewish law and tradition. There are many women steeped in Jewish knowledge, very often the wives of Orthodox rabbis who are qualified teachers of Jewish subjects. In what can be called modern or reformed Judaism, some women dedicate themselves to several years of full-time study in rabbinical seminaries to achieve the status of rabbi. However, in today's Torah observance circles, women rabbis are not accepted, although I believe it is in order for women-only communal prayers to be held. In that case, they read from the Torah and follow a woman prayer leader, Eshelichat Sibur. Many learned wives of Orthodox rabbis, who also teach, adopt that ridiculous title of Rabbanit, or in Yiddish, Rebetzin, though they are not ordained. It's not surprising that the Germans, with their mentality, have that habit too. It's sort of follow the leader, where wives of husbands with titles adopt that title too. Like, for instance, Frau Doctor or Frau Professor. The question now arises, why cannot women perform these duties for a congregation? Let me say at once that I don't advocate this. I bring it forward for discussion. Being a traditionalist brought up in a strict Shabbat-observant environment, not being used to it, I would feel very uncomfortable to be ministered by a woman. In fact, it happened to me once on a Shabbat service in the U.S., when I was given the honor to be called up to the Torah. And to my surprise, I followed a woman and then had to listen to another female voice reading from the Torah. But in this day and age, 
where women perform all tasks previously only the domain of men, should we perhaps consider change and get used to it? I have to confess that my knowledge does not reach to the scriptures that forbid women rabbis, but would be happy to be told. Having said all that, I vehemently object to the method employed by the women of the wall in Jerusalem, who at the beginning of each month disrupt the decorum at the Western Wall by trying to make a political point for women equality for religious rituals. Absolutely the wrong way to achieve their goal. However, the question of women rabbis should be discussed in the context of halakha, Jewish laws, even if only to explain why it cannot be accepted by Orthodox Jews. While on that subject, shouldn't we allow music at all prayer services? After all, every day in our prayers we say Psalm 150, praise him with lyre and harp, praise him with drum and dance, praise him with organ and flute, praise him with clanging thimbles, praise him with resonant trumpets. But we never do it. Then on Shabbat in Psalm 33 we say, Give thanks to Hashem with a harp and with a ten-string lyre. Make music to Him. How can we say this and not do it? I know that on Shabbat, when we hear music in some synagogues, we condemn it as not allowed according to Halakha, Jewish law. Why? One plausible explanation I heard is that a string on an instrument might break and then the musician might be tempted to repair it, which of course is not allowed on Shabbat. But what about on weekdays? If you have an explanation on any of the questions that I post in this last segment, or about anything in the program, then please write to me to walter at israelnewstalkradio.com. Some years ago, when, as a sideline, I did some acting, I was commissioned by the largest circulation English newspaper, the Daily Mail, to sit for several hours on the sidewalk of an important London street, dressed as a beggar with a notice, Hungry and Homeless, Please Help. That's when I learned what it's like to be in such a situation. Most people walked by without giving me a glance. Others led their children in a large circle away from me. Just a few gave them some coins to drop into my hat. I did, however, collect 80 pounds, and that went to charity. Yes, we all think we understand, and we give charity, but there's nothing like experiencing the feeling of poverty for yourself. Regular listeners to this program know that I end each one with a reference to the elderly who are prone to loneliness, particularly at times of the year when families get together and celebrate. You will also know that I am one of the elderly, but thank God I have a large circle of friends and family, am extremely busy, and I'm very seldom alone although I live by myself in an apartment. Every Shabbat I'm invited and I'm very happy. It happened very recently when the weather in Jerusalem was unbearably hot 
and I was advised to stay in my air-conditioned home. That was the first time in a long period that I spent Shabbat by myself, all alone. I can tell you that it was not pleasant. Yes, I had everything I needed, but that was all. Nobody phoned, I could not watch TV or use the computer. And on this occasion, as in the street, it drove it home to me how right I am to regularly remind listeners of the importance to look in on elderly neighbors, or even volunteer to help the elderly. Remember that it were these generations who risked their lives and fought for the freedom that you today enjoy and who, during their working life, helped to build up our country in which Jews now live in relative peace and quiet. So please visit the elderly who may be lonely and yearn for company. Thank you. Until the next time, when I bring you more news, views and interviews from Israel and the rest of the Jewish world, this is Walter Bingham wishing you a good and peaceful week. Goodbye.